Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening and welcome to our fifth season of State of Minds, the magazine program of the University of California. Tonight we've selected five stories that each show the university's commitment to the public interest. From UCLA, an interview with author Amy Ziegart on the problems with U.S. intelligence before 9-11. From UC Davis, world-renowned painter Wayne Tebow reflects on his long career of creating art and art lovers in the Central Valley. From UC San Diego, a look at the Caltech program that inspires students to pursue careers as teachers in math and science. And finally, a profile of the new boss, Mark Udoff, the 19th president of the University of California. But first, military veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan are returning home to enroll in college, and they're finding that the welcome mat is out at UC Berkeley. More from Roxanne Makasjan. First semester here at Berkeley is very much, think of it in your minds, equate that to basic training. I love my work because I have the pleasure of being able to work with some really phenomenal students. Ron Williams teaches a brand new course at UC Berkeley called Veterans in Higher Education. It's geared to help soldiers become successful students. There's so much more uh, that goes along with having served in the armed forces than just specific combat. Our opportunity then is to be able to make those skills and that, that relevant uh, life and professional experience, make it relevant in an academic context here so that they can really excel. The course is part of a larger UC Berkeley effort to help veterans overcome a variety of difficulties, from complications in financing their coursework to adjusting emotionally and socially, even to changing the way they study. Here, you, you don't go with the flow, and, and, your, and your main strength should not be not being noticed. Stuart Martin joined the Marines just after the terrorist attacks on New York and Washington. I've actually invested many, many hours into thinking about how I got into the military. Um, especially when I was in the military, I thought about this all the time. <laughs> Why am I here? I didn't feel ready for college, but I felt ready to um, somehow have some sort of a rite of passage. After learning Farsi in the Marines to become a language translator, he decided to study rhetoric and Iranian literature in college. But after getting accepted to Berkeley, one of his biggest challenges was how to pay for it. Well, at first I lived on my visa card, and then I took out a bunch of student loans and converted those from the visa card to the student loans. Um, I beg for my parents occasionally. Sometimes they'll take me to Costco and I'll get <laughs> a bunch of food. Contrary to what many assume, the government benefits provided to veterans do not nearly cover the expenses of a university education. The idea of helping soldiers assimilate back into civilian life began to take root after World War I and the Great Depression left many vets unable to support themselves. By 1944, with millions of World War II veterans returning home, Congress passed a package of educational, employment, and housing benefits known as the GI Bill of Rights. In the White House at Washington, President Roosevelt approves legislation to provide for America's war veterans in the peace to come. But as time passed, the GI Bill hasn't kept up with the price of a higher education. It's currently only enough to pay for a two-year community college. With another large group of vets returning home, Congress recently passed a new bill to take effect in August of 2009. The new GI Bill promises to pay veterans education at even the top public university in the state. 
The veterans will also receive money for their living expenses and an extra $1,000 for their textbooks. All this will be worth up to $80,000, allowing for many veterans to see a University of California education as finally within their reach. Until then, student vets must plan their budgets very carefully to make ends meet. With this in mind, the university provides them with personal attention to help them make the most of the tangle of resources and requirements set out by the government and the school system. I was wondering what changes are going to be made, how that's going to affect my, uh, my education benefits. You have eligibility for some federal aid, and so we've included those grant monies into your offer letter as well. But we also want to make sure that we can maximize the other awards. UC Berkeley's veteran services are part of a statewide initiative called Troops to College, which requires community colleges to offer special programs for student vets. Although the project was only a recommendation for four-year universities, UC Berkeley took action in a wide range of areas to provide services as well as to recruit veterans. Last year there were a total of 151 vets enrolled, and this year there are 77 new vets on campus. The numbers are only expected to increase. This core mission of public service is something that our veterans embody from the time that they even come to our university. Let alone while they're here, they get involved with the same, and as they graduate, they continue to be involved in their communities and advocate in so many different ways. Philippe Louis-Jean is a former Marine who was part of the U.S. invasion of Baghdad, Iraq. I, I joined the Marines because of financial difficulties. My parents couldn't afford to send me to college. Something that would afford me the opportunity to go to school later on was the Marine Corps. We now have a simple activity that we'd like you to do. After five years in the Marines, Philippe attended community college and then got accepted to Berkeley's highly ranked Haas School of Business with a double major in theater and performance. I'm so excited to be here. I mean, I, I still show up on campus every morning with a big smile on my face because I, I really can't believe I'm, I'm here, you know, I'm at Berkeley. Are the classes as hard as I thought they'd be? Um, no, not at all. They're harder. <laughs> They're actually harder. I mean, they did catch me by surprise. How many manufacturers are playing in that category? The, the challenge is great, though. I mean, the, I'm learning things that I want to learn. I, the, the curriculum is pushing us towards something we want to do. Before I came to Cal, I was concerned that I might not be welcomed as a vet. Um, actually, nobody's bothered me. And people are actually intrigued when they hear that, oh, you're a Marine. Is there anything that I need to do? Well, well I'll work with you on that. I'll make sure that... We need to give veterans an active voice in society and policies. This is fundamentally their society that they fought for. You know, th these people should be um, integrated into our policy-making um, positions. Can't do that without a university education. UC Berkeley has rolled out the red carpet. It's so nice to feel welcomed, to feel wanted. And now to UC Davis, the academic home to Wayne Tebow. He shares his art and legacy with Paul Fotenhauer. His influence on my, on my work and, and on life has been, has been strong, and I think it's that way for a lot of his students. I mean, he is, you know, amazingly well-known and amazingly respected as an artist. But when he's in the art department, he's just one of us. The praise is directed toward this man, Wayne Tebow, who has long been recognized as one of the world's most prominent modern artists. At age 87, Tebow's hand is still on the brush, producing brilliant images on canvas. The oil that he masterfully spreads on cloth is vibrant. What brought Tebow his early acclaim were his depictions of cafeteria-style foods, the cakes, pies, hot dogs, 
and other staples of the American diet. Tebow has painted San Francisco cityscapes of plunging and careening streets. His move to figure paintings in the 1960s and later his abstract landscapes highlight Tebow's brilliant palette of color, light, and shadow. His signature style? The rich, smooth dragging of paint across a surface. One of his cityscapes is this one titled Apartment Hill, completed in 1980. When you look back at this and you look at it, what do you say to yourself? You say, good work? Do you say... I see it differently than when I painted it. Huh. And uh, that's a phenomenon which is very interesting. You wish you could see it when you do it, like you're going to see it a month later, because you, you see things differently. And a year later, you see it differently again. So each time would be a different creation. It's not a different creation, but it seems different in character. Though officially retired since 1991, Tebow teaches one class each academic year. Lucy Poles, the art department chair at UC Davis, says many of the students who take his classes have no idea how important Tebow is to the art world. We don't make a big deal about it because Wayne wants to teach students who want to learn. They, he doesn't want a bunch of groupies in his classes. Paul says that Tebow's teaching is engaging and exciting. I say, I'm just going to go in for five minutes, and then I can't leave. Because I'll go in there, and he starts talking about Michelangelo's David, the sculpture, the toe. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I can't leave till I hear the rest of the about the toe. Tebow was only a teenager when he got his first break in the art world. He took a job as an animator for Walt Disney Studios. When World War II started, the young artist joined the U.S. Army Air Corps and was assigned to Mather Field outside of Sacramento. There he spent the war years cartooning for service publications. While working on his master's, he began teaching at Sacramento Junior College. In 1960, he began his long teaching career at UC Davis. There he became part of a quirky bunch of art faculty. It was a group of iconoclastic, talented young artists on their way up, and yet deeply committed to teaching. Thibault joined sculptors Robert Arneson and Manuel Neri, painter William T. Wiley, and funk artist Roy DeForest. Artist Michael Tompkins was a student at UC Davis at that time. He remembers, in particular, Wayne Thibault's teaching techniques. He was very interested in the language of painting and drawing. Uh, in other words, um, uh, the way, physically the way that you moved a brush around, the, the physicality of paint, this goopy stuff, you know, and how do you make that work, how do you make color work. The Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento was the first gallery to offer a Tebow exhibition in 1951. To be at a museum where we have a wealth of Tebow because we were in his community where he was located early on in his career before the acclaim be became such as it is, it's terrific. It didn't take long before his exhibits began drawing large audiences at the national and international levels. His art has received numerous first place prizes and awards. Today his work can be found in private collections and on display at major museums across the country. Recently, Tebow contributed a collection of paintings, drawings, and sketches to the UC Davis Art Department valued at more than $850,000. These will be valuable teaching tools for students. You had mentioned that art 
is one of the dirtiest words in our culture. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Well, I think it's all mucked up with everybody's expectancy, everybody's misassignment. Uh, since we don't know what it is, people can call anything art. I mean, there are all kinds of painting, and all of it good. All painting does usually is to do something positive for the most part. Covers up bad-looking walls. It, it entrances us. It does all kinds of things. It makes little worlds for us to reimagine. You said that uh, painting is a lot of hard work. Yes. Uh, is it physically tiring? Is it mentally exhausting? It's pain and pleasure. Matisse says the best thing when he says work is a paradise, but you have to know how to enter that paradise. If everybody takes on the idea that work can be something really meaningful and offer something in addition to that pleasurable, then you have a kind of paradise. Thibault has painted a wide range of subjects, a blend of realism and abstraction. His experiences as an animator, teacher, and observer of life seems to enrich his painting, his students, and the art world. My assumption, Mr. Thibault, is that you have as much passion for what you do today as you did when you started out. I think so. I hope so. I feel like I do. <laughs> it's hard to make any, anything having to do with self-assessment, but I'm sure lucky to be able to do it. Our next story comes from the School of Public Affairs at UCLA. Professor Amy Ziegart looked into the cause of U.S. intelligence failures before 9-11. From that came the book Spying Blind and a conversation here with former CIA analyst Larry Johnson. What I found in writing this book is that the conventional wisdom about 9-11 really pinned the blame on individuals. And I think that's part of the story, but it's not the most important part of the story that organizational failures, failures of structure, failures of culture, failures of incentives, led both the CIA and the FBI to miss every single one of the 23 opportunities these agencies had to penetrate and disrupt the 9-11 plot. Is it really organization at that point, or is it the failure of those individuals to make decisions? I think the interesting story is that senior leaders in these agencies got it. George Tenet tried to increase the size of the counterterrorist center. He tried to improve strategic analysis. He tried to declare war. He failed on every single one of these initiatives. Same story with the FBI. The FBI leadership said in 1998, terrorism is our number one priority. We need to do lots of things to transform the Bureau. We need to improve our computer systems. We need to improve... Uh, how we treat analysts, the people who connect the dots. We need to make them equal partners. We need to be proactive, trying to prevent things from happening, rather than reactive, investigating them after they occur. We still see after 9-11, with all the urgency in the world, with 3,000 dead Americans, we still see the same resistance inside both the Bureau and the CIA. How were those failures organizational? The structure of the CIA was a Cold War structure that was a, a decentralized structure that was very hard to change. So where are you going to take people to, to increase the size of the counterterrorist center? From other units in the CIA. Nobody wants to give up their best people. Right, but the analysts who were sent to the counterterrorism center were considered low performers. Mm -hmm. 
it became a dumping ground. I think you see the same thing at the FBI. One former FBI official described counterterrorism in the FBI as a dumping ground for problem children in the 1980s and 90s. So we were deploying, actually, our, our least seasoned analysts against our most important target. Chris, wouldn't the FBI argue that actually when it comes to preventing terrorist incidents, they've had a pretty decent track record? The 9-11 clearly is a black mark, but they prevented the bombing of the Lincoln Holland Tunnels in 1994 uh, because they had actually penetrated the, an Islamic network. I look at the FBI today, and I think the crucial piece of the FBI's ability to do its job it's figuring out what information it has and making sense of that information and sharing that information. The FBI didn't know what it had. There were, as we know, on 9-11, different field offices had no idea what other field offices were doing. So before 9-11, we have Minneapolis agents who find Zacharias Musawi, the so-called 20th hijacker, and detain him. They want to search his computer. In Phoenix, we have the now famous Phoenix memo warning of bin Laden sending terrorists to train in flight schools in the United States. Uh, and we have a manhunt going on in New York. None of the field offices, none of these three field offices were aware of what the others were doing. And no one else in the United States, in the FBI, in the field offices, was aware of, this, of these activities either. The FBI was organizationally incapable and remains incapable today, despite some progress, of understanding the information it already has. Did you have any luck in your research finding out why the FBI, who had been detailed out at the Counterterrorism Center since 1993, why they didn't take that information and pass it back downtown? Because ostensibly that's why they had sent the FBI out there in the first place, wasn't it? Right. And so we have, as, as you know, the exchange of senior uh, CIA and FBI officials before 9-11 was lovingly referred to as the hostage exchange program. So there was a real cultural barrier to having these agencies really working well together. I think that the lesson from my book, I hope, for practitioners, I think there are a couple of important lessons. The first is that the good ideas of how to fix intelligence agencies have been around for a long time. We have racks and stacks of blueprints for reform that go back decades. We don't need more of them. What we need is action. I think the second real lesson from looking at the history of intelligence reform before 9-11 is that the windows of opportunity for major transformation are few and they are fleeting. They don't arise often. And when they do arise, we have to be ready to take advantage of them and push through radical changes in our intelligence agencies because we've already lost that sense of urgency since 9-11. We've already returned to a greater sense of complacency. And what you see is that even 9-11 wasn't enough to transform our intelligence system. Next to UC San Diego. It's well known in education circles that schools across California are short on teachers who really understand math and science. Sherry Seetaller is here with a progress report on the UC's efforts to fill that gap. Okay, so Vincent distributed the two across. Two times x is two x, and two times one is positive two. We're constantly looking for math and science teachers. Right now, there are classrooms in San Diego County that have had long-term subs teaching those courses and uh, and that doesn't speak well for the future. There are so many students at UCSD that are true science and math whizzes. Their first love is science and math 
And I guess we're really intrigued with the possibility that if you take someone whose first love is science and math and interest them in teaching, you may actually end up with one of those rare and special kind of teachers that can truly transmit their love and passion for the subject to the students that they teach. Three years ago, Governor Schwarzenegger and the University of California launched California Teach as a way to attract top math and science students into careers in teaching. Elements of this new initiative include a four-year program that will combine a math, science, or engineering degree with academic training for teaching credential, and a one-year paid teaching internship to help graduates enter the teaching workforce, and a mentor-teacher program to help students learn the most effective instructional methods and much more. Each campus has been free to develop its own CalTeach program, and so far, 1,600 students have participated statewide. Here at UC San Diego, students can choose between a minor in math education and science education. One of our hopes is that students who are in these uh, minors, uh, science education or math education, will realize early in their career, as early as freshmen when they get involved in these minors, that we can provide them with career opportunities that will capitalize on their abilities in science and mathematics as well as letting them pursue their interests in public service. Our general philosophy was, is that the pedagogy should come out of the content. It should not come out of something that's added on top of courses that you already take. So it's not that you do a mathematics major and then we tell, tell you a little pedagogy on top. The idea was that we wanted to have students learn mathematics in the context of trying to think about how they would teach the subject. And this is really, I think, unique about our program. I often find myself thinking back to Math 87 in that we analyze student mistakes and I think that I'm pretty good as a first-year teacher especially. Um, I'm pretty good at looking at what a student is doing and if it's wrong I'm, I can figure out oh they made a mistake here or they might have been thinking this. So Math 87 helped a lot in listening to the student and observing what they were doing to find out what their thinking is. Thinking about their thinking. <laughs> Once students graduate with their bachelor's degree in math science or engineering, with a minor in science or mathematics education, they apply to UC San Diego's credential program. UCSD typically places an intern uh, during, its, during that graduate year uh, on a part-time basis, 50-60 percent uh, of a workload, and uh, they are also participating in a graduate program here, a master's program in education. I found that the UCSD program was really strong in that every project was meaningful. They took the teaching profession really seriously. They continue to encourage us to take teaching really seriously. One of the specificity of CalTeach, which is particularly exciting, is, and it's going on here at UCSD, is taking some of the best math and science students and attracting them towards science careers and teaching careers so that they can become cheerleaders for science for a much larger number of people. That's the most rewarding part. When they ask on-topic questions, they're really um, curious about 
the mathematics, and then I can launch into a discourse with them and investigate the mathematics with them. Because I'm here to communicate mathematics with them. So when they're there too, that's the best part. And when I see the light bulb go on that they're getting it or they want to get it, that's the best part for me. They want to learn. In our last story tonight, Larissa Brannon introduces us to Mark Udoff, the new president of the University of California. I have all sorts of idiosyncrasies. I've spent my life in search of the perfect pancake. Everyone knows that. I'm a little worried about California. I don't want to find sprouts in my pancakes. That would not be good. Udoff, a lawyer raised in Philadelphia, was a longtime member of the University of Texas law faculty before becoming president of the University of Minnesota and then University of Texas Systems. As he begins his UC presidency, Udoff views a number of issues as vitally important. One is the restructuring of the office of the president, make sure we're husbanding our resources and that we're performing functions well. I want to make sure that our governance is proper, that the board is uh, well aware of its role and the president of his and the chancellors of their role. And there are many things that uh, the office of the president shouldn't, should not be regulating on the campuses. And, so, too, uh, we need to have a feeling of uh, trust between the Board of Regents and the President uh, so that the, the Board carries out its primary responsibility for policy and the uh, and President is in charge of, uh, of the administration and relations with the campuses. I do have strong feelings about advocating for a more fulsome budget for the University of California. And I think it's not so much uh, testifying before a particular committee, although that may be important, or having the governor's ear, which I hope to have. I think it's uh, a long-range educational plan. And it's our job to make a more effective case for why it is that uh, many of the great accomplishments of the state have been occasioned by what's going on on these campuses. And if we can accomplish that, then I think that is the backdrop against which we can be more successful uh, in the appropriations process. Budgets some years are stronger than in others. There are recessions and there are downturns. But long term, uh, we need to engage in that educational process. Yudoff has had many role models during his nearly 40-year career in law and academia. But as he transitions into his position as president of the world's premier public university, he draws inspiration from former University of Texas at Austin president Peter Flan. You know, he had a rule. There were no pending decisions left on his desk at the end of the day. He kept the trains running. He was decisive and a much-beloved figure. And when he's not working, Yudoff makes time for his favorite hobbies. I read a lot of science books. Um, I feel that you can uh, understand science from 20,000 feet and its importance even if you can't do it. I feel the same way about the Philadelphia Phillies. I can't lay down a bunt. I can't catch a fly in center field. Uh, but I'm always prepared to boo or cheer depending on how they perform. I'm sure my staff at Texas would tell you a lot of other things that are, are mildly or even more than mildly amusing. but. That's all I feel comfortable sharing today. That wraps up this edition of State of Minds. We'll be back in the winter with more from the University of California, including a segment on what the next president of the United States should know about physics. Until then, thank you for being with us. I'm Shannon Bradley. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.